Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Leroy Dick knew the smell of death. It's an odor you don't forget once you're acquainted with it, no matter how hard you might try. And Leroy had encountered it countless times while on the battlefield during the Civil War. So when he arrived at an abandoned log cabin in Lebec County, Kansas in 1872 and was greeted by that unmistakable stench, his adrenaline rose as quickly as his heart sank. He had come to the property because a cattle driver by the name of Billy Toll knew the family who owned it and was surprised to find it empty as he led some cattle by one day. Toll had approached to find a starving cow and a dead calf in the barn. When a wave of flies engulfed him inside the cabin, he figured he'd done enough exploring for one day. He reported this to the town trustee, who called for volunteers to assist in searching the Bender's property. This is from Briefcase, a UK-based true crime YouTube channel. After a quick inspection of the cabin, it became apparent that they had left in somewhat of a hurry. The property was searched. Leroy Dick, the town trustee heading up the search, had hoped that the calf corpse in the barn was the source of the death scent that Toll had described to him. But as soon as he whiffed it himself, he knew that wasn't the case. There's something a little different about the smell of a dead human, a tad less gamey, an underlying sweetness beneath the rot. As the crew searched the cabin, they found a cellar door in the kitchen floor and flung it open. The odor caused more than one in the search party to rush from the place retching. Leroy resolved to start digging, but there was a slab of sandstone serving as a crude basement floor blocking his way. Uncovering the secrets at the Bender family cabin promised to be slow going, but once the truth was known, the horrors unearthed would never be forgotten. Inside the modest cabin that housed the Bender family lived a family of four. They claimed to be an elderly married couple and their pair of adult children, but even back in 1870, when they staked claim to the oddly shaped parcel of Kansas land, people were dubious that the two younger ones were really brother and sister. What was clear is that the two who went by Ma and Pa Bender were cranky and old and German by birth. They spoke a bit of English, but it was broken. Instead of Spanglish, I guess it was, I don't know, Germlish? Ingman? Anyway, these two were not well-liked by their neighbors. The old man was described as a hideous brute, the old woman as a dirty crone. He would spit and curse, she would snore loudly, and while how they behaved in their own cabin would normally be their own business, in this case, that wasn't quite true because they set up the cabin to actually be an inn. Inside of the modest kitchen was a sign that read groceries, misspelled for a time at least. People traveling the prairie would need provisions and rest after all, and the Bender family was keen to make some money. 
They didn't stock much, but they didn't have to because they were the only store in town. People complaining about the selection would have to travel miles in any direction to reach another store. The cabin was literally one room, so these were cramped quarters for an inn. To give the guests some semblance of privacy, a wagon tent divided one half of the place from the other. If you're wondering who the hell would stay in a place like this, the answer is simple. Desperate people would. They just wanted a place to rest their head for a night or two and a good meal to restore their energy. From a video by the Infographics Show. The Bender Homestead was like an oasis to these travelers, and they were only too happy to have a place to stay, to be able to fill their wagons with food, water, gunpowder, booze, and tobacco. There was another targeted clientele as well. Horny men. That's because Kate Bender, introduced as the daughter of Ma and Pa, was apparently a looker. They were reportedly entranced by Kate's good looks and her way with words. Come rest, she told them. Even better, she was a looker and a seer. From Faces of the Forgotten. She was the spiritualist. And she did all kinds of stuff. She sent flyers out advertising her supernatural powers. She could cure any illness. And she became popular in town. Rounding out the foursome was a guy named John. Now this part gets a little confusing because everyone at the time called them the Bender family and called the homestead the Bender cabin, but it seems that John's real surname wasn't Bender because he most likely wasn't Ma and Pa's son nor Kate's brother. But more on that in a bit. To understand how the Benders operated, you first have to understand how things were in 1870s Kansas. Obviously, this was a chaotic time in American history because it was after the Civil War, but it was before a lot of the West was settled by an unprecedented influx of immigrants. Native Americans were being uprooted from lands they'd roamed for centuries and shuffled, sometimes quite violently, from one reservation to another. The federal government took over the land and wanted to keep pushing settlers west, so incentives were offered for families to stake out parcels, build homes, and farm the soil. If they did well by the property, they were often allowed to keep it on the cheap. That lured people away from the East Coast, people like the Bender family. One day in 1870, the two men in the crew, both of their first names were John, apparently, but we'll call the older one Pa to keep things clear, went to Kansas to check out available homesteads. This was on land that had been home to the Osage Indians, whose saga we also discussed in the final episode of season one. It feels worth pointing out that part of the justification for pushing the Osage off this land was to take it away from supposedly savage people and have it settled by respectable folk. As you'll learn, that didn't work out so well. Anyway, when Pa and John arrived, they encountered some already settled men who were willing to show them around the place and point out parcels that were still unclaimed. They were just another bunch of folks that were going to see just how hard it was settling in such a harsh environment. The Benders checked out a few hunks of such land and seemed unimpressed, until they saw an elongated bit situated in a valley. Cutting through the land was Drum Creek. It featured a small pond, too. The men seemed to like the water access, plus the fact that the parcel would easily catch the attention of anyone traveling through the area because it was adjacent to what was then called the Great Osage Trail, which would later be dubbed the Santa Fe Trail. All this is what gave the land that oasis feel that you heard the infographics show describe a few minutes ago. If a person back then wanted to move west along an open road, then they had to pass through this trail. 
But as easy as it was to spot in daylight, at nighttime, this place would be hidden in shadows unless lit with oil lamps. In other words, visibility after sunset would really be up to the benders. If they wanted company, they could light the place and be spotted from a mile away. If they wanted privacy, on the other hand, they could easily ensure it. The benders soon got their hands dirty and built a barn, a corral, and a cabin. The cabin had two rooms, only separated by the cloth of a wagon cover. They made a kitchen and they converted part of their cabin into a general store and a place a traveler could have a bite to eat. On top of that, they made a small compartment where someone could rest their head for the night. The men were on their own during the construction phase of things. Pa struck people as a bit gruff and antisocial. John Sr. was known as a solemn man of little communication. This is from a video I found on a YouTube channel called Murderpedia. He spoke with a thick German accent, and his vocabulary consisted of little more than grunts and curses. The younger John, meanwhile, could talk to anyone who would listen, and he often did. People would later say he was kind of disconcerting because he'd just keep talking to you whether you wanted him to or not. Plus, he punctuated a lot of his conversations with an uncomfortable, high-pitched laugh that people found unnerving. The cabin the men built was modest, but they had big plans for it. In 1871, they were joined by the two women of the family, Ma, whose birth name is flat-out unknown, and Kate, the looker-slash-seer. As soon as the whole family was together, they set about spreading word that their small place was more than a homestead. It was an inn and a grocery store for weary travelers. It was also a place where Kate would read fortunes and host seances. It would take a good two years before anyone realized that a lot more was going on inside the Bender cabin than had been advertised. There had been signs that something might be amiss along the Osage Mission Trail for months, but those signs were easier spotted in hindsight than in real time. This was a path slicing through uncharted territory, after all, in a time before phones and cars. Most parts of the country didn't have any form of official policing, and those that did, big cities like New York and Chicago, notably, were still only a few decades old. Most of the Great Plains was overseen by vigilantes whose tempers were short and whose justice was usually dictated by mob rule. Suspected thieves might be hanged just as quickly as known killers were. There was no presumption of innocence, no process to protect the rights of the accused. Chaos reigned. The lack of order made the Osage Trail an easy target for criminals happy to relieve travelers of their money and horses, and the lack of law enforcing oversight made it an easier decision for those criminals to simply kill their victims because if the victims lived and got help from vigilantes, there was a reasonable chance the criminals would be hanged anyway. Dead men can't point fingers. Sometimes men who traveled the terrain simply vanished. Family members trying to track them would follow their footsteps until the trail went cold. They would read newspapers to scour for word of a dead body found, hopefully with enough description to help narrow the odds that the corpse was their loved one. Oftentimes the mystery was never solved. Many families forged ahead with no clue as to whether their vanished husband or brother or son had died of exposure or been killed by animals or attacked by thieves. The not knowing must have been hell, but it was an accepted risk of frontier living. 
In October of 1872, one woman found the answer to her husband's disappearance. As described in the book Hell's Half Acre by historian and author Susan Jonasis, the body of a man named William Jones was found floating in Drum Creek. His skull had been crushed and his throat slit from briefcase again. There was no clear indication of who had committed the crime, although the owner of Drum Creek was suspected, owing to his sheer proximity to the murder. That owner, R.M. Bennett, was clearly worried that he'd be targeted by vigilantes, so he demanded a full investigation. He said that the night of the murder, he had heard the sound of a wagon near the dump site. Investigators checked and indeed found tire marks belonging to a wagon. One of the wheels was distinctive. It didn't line up with Bennett's own wagon marks, and suspicion that he was the killer abated. The victim in that case, William Jones, had been headed back home after helping to build a schoolhouse. He was returning to his wife Martha and their three young children. Martha knew that he had $150 of his own money on him, plus another $100 that he had borrowed. That $250 total, which in today's money would be worth about $6,000, was meant to pay off their homestead. It was a big deal that the family was finally going to own their land outright. When William didn't come home, Martha grew worried. It wasn't until after a public inquest regarding the slain man found in Drum Creek that she put two and two together. Through the inquest, the corpse had been a John Doe, but once Martha read a description in the newspaper after the inquest, she was sure it was her husband. Months after she confirmed it, two more bodies were found. This time, they weren't near the creek, but still near Osage land. Like Jones, these men appeared to have been traveling alone when their skulls were bashed and their throats cut. Investigators tried to piece together what little information they could as they needed to find the perpetrators of these grisly crimes. Word began to spread that traveling along the Osage Mission Trail wasn't safe. There must be a band of horse thieves and killers running amok, people figured. Those who did decide to take the trail at least made a point to try and be safe about it. Several asked trusted folks along the trail for recommendations on places to stop for the night. Plenty of those fielding the inquiries said, oh, the Bender family puts people up at their place, a little wayside inn. The more dangerous the trail seemed to be, the better business was for the Benders. Now, the business they ran was interesting. Susan Jonasis's book about the case provides a lot of details on that front. The place was described as basically a shithole covered in flies and filth. You'll remember that it purported to be a sort of small grocery store or two, but they barely stocked anything. They basically would travel into town every few weeks, grab some stuff, bring it back to the cabin, and mark up the price. Sometimes when people arrived, the benders were so rude that the would-be guests felt like they were trespassing. Kate Bender especially seemed unpredictably mercurial. She'd sometimes greet the travelers like long-lost friends sitting and talking with them for hours. But then the next time that same person would arrive, she'd act annoyed to see them. Mon Pa had never impressed neighbors, period. Pa especially, who just seemed cranky all the time. And John had that weird high-pitched laugh that made him seem a bit off. Kate had always been the draw, but then only when her mood cooperated. When she was on, she could be charming and witty and a bit risque. 
When she was off, she gave such unsettling vibes that there were stories of grown men bolting from the place gripped by a panic they couldn't explain. Of course, when the truth about the cabin was finally revealed, the people who had fled were sure that they had sensed evil in the air and had saved themselves. How the truth finally started coming to light began with the disappearance of a doctor. In March 1873, a physician from Independence, Kansas named Dr. William York alighted a train in Cherryvale, a town not too far from the Osage Trail. Dr. York had grown concerned about a friend and former neighbor named George Lanker, who'd been born in Iowa in 1842. After he had served for the Union in the Civil War, George and his wife Mary Jane had moved to Kansas looking for a fresh start, only to endure one tragedy after another. First, the couple's son died, and then Mary Jane died soon after giving birth to a daughter named Mary Ann. Come late 1872, George realized he didn't want to raise his daughter on his own, so he decided the two of them would return to Iowa, where they had family. Before George and baby Mary Ann left, they'd become close with the York family. Mrs. York had helped watch the baby after Mary Jane's death, in fact, but Mrs. York herself was pregnant again. She and the doctor were expecting baby number four, and so she'd regretfully had to tell George that she probably couldn't be relied upon as his main support system anymore. George understood, and that's part of the reason he decided in November of 1872 to make the journey back to Iowa. After months passed with no word that George and Marianne had arrived home safely, Dr. York grew worried. He set out to figure out what the hell had happened to his friend, and just as importantly, the baby girl traveling with him. William kissed his wife and his children and promised he'd keep his expedition as brief as possible. When Mrs. York waved goodbye to her husband, she worried that she would never see him again. Dr. William York was a well-known, well-liked member of his community. His older brother was even better known, though, and on the national stage. Alexander York had been a lieutenant colonel in the Union Army who parlayed his stellar reputation there into a political career from a radio show called Indiana in the Morning. Alexander York was a, a politician and a quite famous one in Kansas at that time. Alexander had made it his goal to expose a fellow senator named Samuel Pomeroy, who'd represented Kansas since its admission to the Union in 1861. As the years passed, Pomeroy became suspected of corruption, though official charges never seemed to stick. Alexander accepted a bribe from Pomeroy to the tune of $7,000 and then delivered that money to Congress as he gave a speech explaining where he got the money. Alexander ruined his own political career by accepting the bribe, but his entrapment plan also managed to succeed in destroying Pomeroy's career at the same time by finally offering the public proof that Pomeroy was corrupt. Pomeroy lost re-election to John J. Ingalls, who would serve in the Senate for nearly 20 years. Ingalls, by the way, was a distant relative of Laura Ingalls Wilder, author of Little House on the Prairie. Around the same time that Alexander York was making headlines for this bribery scheme, his brother left home to search for George Longcore. When William hadn't returned within a few weeks, his wife sent word to Alexander, whose political career was already in tatters. 
Alexander gathered a few men, including his and William's younger brother, Edward, and tried to track William's steps. While the brothers at first thought that the disappearances might have been down to attacks by Native Americans, they also wondered if some of those homesteads contained something quite insidious. A few people said they'd encountered him. They reported that William had sold his junker of a horse for a fancier one, suggesting he expected his journey to be arduous enough that he needed a stronger steed. Someone also remembered directing William to the Bender cabin because they had remembered telling George Longcore about the place months earlier. If William had thought George might have stopped at the Bender's Inn, it was feasible William stopped there too to ask questions. The York brothers, joined by some volunteers and a private detective named Thomas Beers, stopped by the cabin. The Benders didn't offer any answers when it came to the missing men being sought, but Kate apparently told Alexander to come back in a few days. In the meantime, she said she'd use her gifts as a medium to try to divine what had happened to his brother. Maybe she could offer him some answers from the spirit realm, if nothing else. Alexander thought she was a baddie and said no thanks. He'd heard some grumblings that people in the area were starting to wonder if the Benders played any part in these strange disappearances, but the idea seemed outlandish to him. Ma and Pa were decrepit old cranks. John seemed a dimwit who had been sitting on the porch reading his Bible when they arrived. And Kate, well, she was a weirdo, but she seemed harmless enough. Beers, the detective, wasn't so sure. He would tell people that the Bender cabin had creeped him out and that Alexander seemed too quick to dismiss the family, but he'd seen nothing that backed up his gut feelings, so there wasn't much to do about it. It was a few weeks after this encounter that Billy Toll, the cattle driver described at the top of the episode, noticed that the Bender home had been deserted. By the time Alexander York returned to the cabin, town trustee Leroy Dick was already certain he had detected the scent of decaying human flesh on the property. A search party of several hundred people was formed. When they got to the Bender house, they discovered that it was pretty much empty of clothes and provisions. From the infographic show again. All that had been left behind was something that smelled awful, as if a decaying body was under the floorboards. The men found a trap door that was bolted shut, but they soon managed to wrestle it open. The door led to a dark room under the house, and there they saw blood splattered everywhere, some of it not so old. But they still couldn't find a body. Leroy Dick thought maybe the worst of the odor was coming up from beneath the slab of sandstone serving as the basement floor, so he and the others managed to haul the cabin off its foundation to give them room to tear apart the stone. There still were no bodies. In the meantime, William York's younger brother, Edward, arrived. While most of the workers were digging in the earth where the cabin had once stood, Edward went inside the cabin itself. He found a riding crop hidden inside, one that he recognized as belonging to his brother. He stepped outside and noticed that there was disturbed ground in an orchard across the way, so he went out and quietly began digging. He soon unearthed his brother, whose skull had been smashed and his throat cut. The search party's attention shifted from the basement to the orchard, where they found another man in another grave. Beneath the man's leg was the body of an 18-month-old girl. George and Mary Ann Longcore had been found. While George's body showed he'd been killed in the same fashion as previous victims, Mary Ann had no outward injuries. It appeared she was buried alive, still wearing her mittens. Then another body was found, and another. In the orchard, eight bodies were unearthed. 
Those, plus the corpses killed in similar fashion found elsewhere in the prairie, lead most to believe that the Bender's ultimate body count was around a dozen, though the true number will forever be a mystery. Leroy Dick found what appeared to be murder weapons, three hammers of various sizes, inside of the cabin. The diameters matched some of the wounds in the unearthed skulls. Soon, reporters learned about the gruesome discovery on the farm. The media arrived at the Bender place, coming from as far away as New York City and Chicago. The public came from far and wide, all wanting to look at the place where the evil had lived. Rewards were offered to anyone who could locate the family, which in today's money were around $20,000 and $40,000. Everyone had a theory as to what had happened on the farm, and while a lot of questions will never be answered, here's the general consensus. The Benders ran their inn as a legitimate business for most pseudo-local people. If a visitor wasn't from too far away, he'd either be turned away by an ornery Kate not wanting to deal with him, or he'd be welcomed in and would be treated decently enough that he wouldn't hesitate to mention the inn when queried by someone passing through asking about safe places to stay. Out-of-towners, on the other hand, were likely to be grilled by the Bender family who'd ask prying questions. What are you doing here? Who's expecting you? Where and when? What all are you traveling with? A churchman who'd stopped and mentioned the donations he was hauling later said he had seen such a greedy glint in Kate's eye that he got uneasy and bolted. He decided he'd rather rough it outside than stay with this creepy family. Apparently, others didn't have that same spidey sense. They would sit down to eat with their backs to the tent canvas that divided the single-room cabin. Someone would come up from behind them and smash them in the skull. Then the victim's throat would be slit and his body pushed down the cellar hatch where it'd be left to bleed out. That's why there was such an awful smell of death inside the cabin, despite the bodies not being buried there. The blood saturated the soil beneath the home, drawing bugs and flies. Later, someone from the family would haul the corpse from the basement to the orchard and bury it deep. Townsfolk who uncovered the crimes quickly realized that the benders had to have had help. Many of the victims had belongings with them that would have been tough to sell anywhere local because it would have looked suspicious for the innkeepers to be hawking strange horses and jewelry, especially as word was spreading that men had been disappearing in the region. Anyone known to be friendly with the benders was suspected of being part of their ring at first. The accusations were so bad that one poor neighbor was hanged to unconsciousness, revived, and then hanged again until the angry mob who'd strung him up believed him dead. Amazingly, he revived again, ran away, and managed to live to tell the tale. As stories spread about the murderous family, tips came in explaining how they had disappeared. Apparently, when Alexander and Edward York went through the region looking for William, they'd rattled folks enough that a town meeting was held soon after they left. From Faces of the Forgotten. Everybody got together and said, what are we going to do? And they said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to search every house. We're going to inspect every little inch of every house. The Benders knew the end was near. They crammed some belongings into a suitcase, took their wagon to the train station, and left town. Train workers remembered them not just because they were in such a huge rush, but also because of their luggage. From a show called Rewire. They were easily identified due to their unusual and frankly gruesome suitcase, which was covered in dog hide. The station agent remembered the luggage clearly. 
it still had hair attached to it. A wagon had been abandoned nearby and discovered a bit earlier, but no one knew at first to whom that wagon belonged. Once the pieces started to fall together, it all became clear. There was a sign that read groceries misspelled in the wagon, and one of the wheels had a distinctive trait that matched the tracks left by Drum Creek where William Jones's body had been found the previous October. Alexander York blamed himself for not being more suspicious of the benders when he met them in person at their cabin. Author Susan Jonasis talking with Indiana in the morning. His story and the guilt that he must have carried for the rest of his life just for me was such a central part of the overall narrative because he he knew he'd interacted with the murderers and I don't think you can ever really get over that when you know that your loved one was killed in such a brutal way. Alexander made it his life's goal to track down the benders, but he never did. Tidbits would reach him about their whereabouts, but by the time the false leads were ferreted out, the real ones had timed out. Supposed accomplices would step forward, offering to turn the benders in, only to back out. That's how it became clear that John, the younger man in the family, was likely not blood-related at all. He was apparently John Gephardt, a career criminal who was not Kate Bender's brother, but probably her common-law husband. I tend to believe that somebody in the family really enjoyed murdering, and the others were all right to be complicit in it. I would suspect Uh, John Gebhardt, because of his association with other very violent criminals who we know committed a series of crimes over a long period, but essentially the family were just career criminals who made their living by robbing their murder victims and then fencing their stolen horses. Newspapers continued revisiting the tale here and there, most notably in the late 1880s when a mother and daughter pair in Michigan were suspected of being Ma and Kate Bender. Leroy Dick, the town trustee who had helped the investigation, was so adamant that he recognized the two women as part of the Bender clan that he testified to it, but the jury didn't buy it, and the women were set free. They were considered quite lucky. What's scarier is that multiple posses were active in dealing out frontier justice to the benders as they were caught. Multiple groups of benders were claimed to have been caught by multiple posses, suggesting that potentially several innocents were murdered by what amounted to little more than lynch mobs. The true fate of the benders remains a mystery to this day. To research this case, I read Susan Jonas's Hell's Half Acre, The Untold Story of the Benders, A Serial Killer Family on the American Frontier. It's one of those historical books that's also a well-crafted read. It's worth checking out. I also dug into some genealogical reports, watched some crude documentaries, and read contemporary news coverage. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com 
On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page. <laughs>